And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague from The Athletic, Stuart Mandel. Stu, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to also get into Alabama and their spring. It's interesting, even if it wasn't on ESPN, like their spring game always is. It wasn't this year, but we're going to have our friend Aaron Suttles on to fill us in on what you need to know about the Crimson Tide coming off a season when Georgia finally won a national title and Alabama didn't. Uh, But before we get to Aaron, lots to talk to. You and I both had some uh, what we thought were interesting pieces you have gone back to the well on the NIL front. And I think for a lot of people who read your story, um, some of the things that jumped out were, wait a minute, a three-star defensive lineman can command this kind of money. And Mm -hmm. I think there's some other aspects of it that were um, a little bit eye-catching. For the readers who have not seen your story yet, um, what would you want that, what was your takeaway going into this piece? My goal with the story was just to give people a sense of what the market is out there, what, what, what kind of money is, is floating around uh, from these NIL collectives to the recruits. The $8 million deal I reported about in March, um, you know, obviously was very shocking to people, but that was not necessarily the norm. What, what are, you know, the lower down kids getting? And, you know, I was able to see three of those contracts. Um, you know, one was a, a four-star receiver. Uh, who got north of a million dollars spread out over four years. Um, a pretty highly ranked, he's four-star, a pretty highly ranked defensive lineman, uh, got a million over three years. Uh, and then, like you said, even a three-star defensive lineman, um, you know, getting $500,000 spread over four years. When I was thinking about that and I was like, gosh, that's $125,000 a year. Um, you know, if that were a, you know, a, 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 a 48 year old, that would be a very, very, very good salary. And this kid's getting it at 18. Um, and, and this is representative of, of a larger, um, you know, it wasn't, you know, we talked to coach, you and I, we, everybody, we talked to coaches, we know, we hear about some of the numbers that are being tossed around out there. Um, I think that they gave you a little bit of a sampling of how, um, lucrative, this market is now for football recruits uh, because of in large part, because of the rise of these NIL collectives. Uh, Two things. So the first question I have is a short answer, which is of all three uh, contracts that you saw, have all those players been committed? Yes. All those players are committed. um, And, and, and that's what, you know, again, just like the first one I saw, there is nothing in that language of that contract that's, includes the name of a school or says that but, you have to but is that just school. devil's advocate and we've seen other people especially on in regards to your story and other stories about all right 
it's very semantics on the language. It, it becomes like an interesting legal threshold. Well, just because you don't say it and everybody knows it mm-hmm. that like where, and I, I'm not, you're not a lawyer and you're not a judge. So I'm not, I don't want to put you in that position to weigh in. Cause obviously your source believes one thing <laughs> being a lawyer and other sources seem to be contesting that. Um, yeah. I've noticed that a bit of a rift in the legal community between I mean, clearly these collectives that they and they have lawyers, too, who are doing these deals believe that um, that it's on the up and up. Uh, you know, if there's nothing in writing that says this is a recruiting inducement or you have to go to this school or you have to stay at this school, then you can't prove that it was a recruiting inducement. Right. And then we've seen other than one. Uh, Darren Heitner is one of the attorneys quoted in my story. Um, he's a sports agent, a sports lawyer in South Florida. He's worked with the Florida collective and a couple of the other ones down there um, who believe does not that, seem to be a big fan of the, uh, of one of your sources on this of, of Mike Caspino, the guy in California who's doing a lot of these deals, you know, says like what's what it says in the contract doesn't matter. The intent does. And what, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't go to law school, but I'll say this. If you're sitting there, if you're somebody who's at one of the schools, that's kind of playing about playing by the rules still, or doesn't want to get involved in this game and you're waiting on the NCAA to step in and punish the other ones, uh, you're going to, I wouldn't hold your breath. Um, I mean, I think that's where there's a bit of, you know, even if, even if that, if, if Darren's interpretation of it is correct, I don't know that the NCAA has the muscle to do anything about it. And, and, you know, NCAA enforcement, what, what power does NCAA enforcement hold these days? We just saw Bill Self, hoist another national title and you know his program was caught red-handed major NCA violations years ago and nothing has come of it so do we really think that that Mark Emmert or and his people are going to be the ones to, to come in and say uh to you know Spire Sports the collective at Tennessee or Division Street the one at Oregon you know you've been violating NCA rules this whole time and all these players are ineligible now well, speaking of, you know, you brought it up, Tennessee and their collective, and it seems like they're pretty active on this. Uh, it wasn't that long ago where the chancellor of the University of Tennessee stood in front of a podium and talked about level one violations re- 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 related to the coach they were firing, Jeremy Pruitt. The NCAA has not gotten around to that yet. I mean, there's a lot of damning text messages from what we've heard from sources, you know, at The Athletic. Um you know, this isn't, you know, this, this isn't two different worlds. So that's interesting to me. I also think, um, you know, people, including some people I know were kind of hung up on, well, he's a, they're paid that for a three-star. Let's keep in mind that a lot of uh, people in football offices who do the actual evaluations, they're not always thinking, oh, that guy's a three-star. They paid for this. I mean, yeah. the school that may have paid for him, they may think he's better than some top hundred players if they think that. And I also realize a lot of times when these players are evaluated, they're not seniors yet. So there's still a lot of parts in the development. I think sometimes people get hung up on, oh, this guy was a three-star, this guy was a four-star. I mean, that's the two, four, seven, mostly recruiting evaluation. That's not what the coaches think. Now, also, Bruce, just sorry, but there's also what's the comp, what was the competition for that recruit, right? You know, you could, he might be a three-star who, who had offers from, um, you know, a bunch of schools that if money weren't a factor would have a better chance at the kids. So they felt like they had to pay more or, 
uh, or the flip side of that, maybe a guy's higher rated, but like he, he's always wanted to go to state school you and he, there's, you don't need to overpay for him because he's coming. Right. So that's a factor as well. Well, this is also, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think coaches have, have said is and people inside the game. Okay. This is not new. What is new is that there's actual contracts are right. about it. You, you know, we've heard, and, and maybe you didn't know how much money somebody was getting. I can think of a five-star recruit recently and the, the money I had heard from talking to coaches in the same league was three years, $1.2 million was the deal. And is that, is that a huge difference from what somebody was perhaps offering? I don't know. Cause it depends on the recruit. I definitely have heard of stories of, you know, whether there are car, you know, cars that were being purchased or different things. I mean, if you know enough coaches and you, you've been involved in the recruiting reporting side, you've heard plenty of stuff. I think here now, because there's lawyers, because there's contract, it's different, but let's, Go back to, again, we'll talk about the three-star defensive line recruit. So let's say the collective of that particular school, like reality is, yeah, it's one thing to know maybe who the five-star quarterback is, but the average fan, even the average diehard fan probably is not going to be trusted on the evaluation of what they have for, you know, somebody has to go to them and say, okay, this is a player we think is worth can be a, you know, a starter immediately or an impact guy. So did that, so does that, did that staff go to that collective and say, you, this is what we need you to do. Like walk us through how that process happened because that's you know, still, that's still, um, I mean, to me, that would seem obvious because if you're a, if you're a collective, the idea that you would pay, make this commitment, to let's say it's, you know, cause there's, and you could say this about, you know, this comes up on Super Bowl time. It comes up on draft time, everything about like how there's so many more three stars than four and five stars, but for, for, for a collective to, to put, to put their money in for a player, they're clearly gotta be getting um, direction from a coaching staff. Cause if they're not, what the hell is going to happen when that player shows up and, you know, like, I mean, I'm just adding two and yeah. two together here. That's the obvious thing. You have to get direction. They, there has to be involvement because if there's not, you're going to have even more problems on when that player shows Right. Up. So to be clear, by rule, by NCAA rule, the coaching staff absolutely cannot be involved in any. But how could they not be? think about it? Oh, yeah. That. Well, but we know it's happening in reality, right? There's no way the collective is just deciding on its own. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, if you, if you read two, four, seven, you, you know, who the kid, you, you know, who your school is recruiting, but no way, no way are they committing that kind of money without but you, you the coaches. Know yeah, but you do. And you don't know who they're recruiting because I can give you an example. There was a big time uh, receiver on the West coast who said he was choosing between X and Y. And I knew who Y was supposed to be. And Y was like, we haven't sent that kid scholarship papers. I have but no I doubt that either the coaches talk to them or maybe there's some sort of intermediary. I don't know. So if you were going to bust one of these of collective coaches talk, yeah. to how would that not? I mean, let's be like, I mean, we're kidding ourselves if they don't think there's direction. No, I'm sure they are. I, I know. Let's face it. We know they are. Okay. So the question, so then if you were going to, if you're the NSA and you wanted to bust one of these schools, the way you would do it is if somebody was dumb enough to put in a text message or an email, Hey, you know, uh, Coach X texts collective guy and says, we really need you to go get 
this specific recruit, you know, how much are you going to pay him? Right. Which by the way, in the, in the college basketball FBI stuff, there was some of that, right. That got, frankly got people sent to jail. Um, you know, if somebody was sloppy enough to do that and you found it and yeah, you, there you go, you've, you've, you've proven that, um, the school itself, not just the collective is involved in, uh, giving kids money. Um, but I don't know. I mean, these are, you would think that people are uh, being careful and savvy about it and, and avoiding that kind of thing. We'll see, but you know, clearly now the question I've had raised is what if, what if, what happens if the coach wants one kid and the collective wants a different one? Um, What if the the coach is like, because like you said, the coach's evaluations might be completely different from the recruiting services. So what if, you know, the coaching staff is, they need a receiver and they, they have a, you know, like a big board, and they're like, this guy's our number five receiver. We really want him. And the collective's like, but he's only a three star. Why would we give our money to him? You know, it's the the danger of this this system that has been set up, where they're putting so much power in the hands of of people who don't work for the football office. Well, again, going back to your point from Kyle Tucker, our colleague who covers Kentucky at the Athletic, I've heard from multiple places that SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey has advised caution to member schools on these NIL collectives and other initiatives that are really flirting with full-on pay-for-play. There's some real concern of a reckoning for those playing fast and loose. Um, You know, if there's a paper trail here that could be damning, we'll see where that could be headed. I mean, it's interesting you say that because uh, I was doing an interview and somebody asked me, you know, why isn't the NCAA doing anything? Why can't the NCAA do anything? And, you know, we know the, if you follow this stuff closely, you know, about the Supreme Court decision and, you know, they're just completely hamstrung. If somebody was going to do it with something about it, it could be Greg Sankey um, because he has much more tighter control over his member institutions, right? He could put in a rule that's, you know, he could, he, he, if he wanted to do something about it, I feel like he could do something about it. The question is, does he really want to go there? Does he want to get in the way of, I mean, Tennessee fans right now are loving life. They haven't been this relevant in, in this long. And they're, um, they've got this collective Spire Sports that is stepping up and, and suddenly they were signing all these great recruits. Is Greg Sankey want to be the one to shut that down? Um, is he going to be the one that tells a coach in his league who's making $9 million a year, he can't do that anymore. I, I think that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch going forward. It's one thing to tell them, hey, tread carefully. It's another thing to actually do something about it. Because like, if he's told them that, I can tell you it hasn't stopped several of the schools in their conference. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm not just talking Tennessee. You know, I think, I think most, as I'm thinking about it, most schools in the SEC have a collective that, and I would say probably at least half of them are directly involved with recruiting. Georgia and Alabama. Well, Georgia and Alabama just recently announced collectives, but it's unclear whether they like, does, do they need to be involved in this? I think there's been a, a an attitude among those kind of schools that like, we, we're going to get kids anyway. Um, you know, I think, you know, but, but I think that um, I think there's a reason why some of the ones that are being the most aggressive, uh, Texas A&M, Tennessee, Miami has some super boosters that are getting really involved are the one are not Alabama, Georgia, Ohio state. They're ones who are scrambling to catch up to those programs. Well, Ohio state does have a collective because they have Mm -hmm. a, you know, big booster attached to it and a former 
Ohio State coach who's now directly involved with it. Um, they also have been they've I, been very prominent in the NIL side in terms of the benefits for their players. So I don't, you know, I think, and David Hale, who works at ESPN.com, went on a, you know, very interesting, I don't know, Twitter thread to kind of talk about the distinctions, which I think he's right in terms of we are putting NIL into a lot. And I think we're, according to Kyle Tucker on the pay for play range, there is a definitely a different uh, element of this than I think is then most people have come to think this is what NIL is. As opposed We're to using NIL. NIL and collective to, and, and you know, let me, that phrase, that word collective is being used for a large, for, for organizations that in some cases have, have nothing in common. Like but it's really, I mean, a lot of ways it is devolved into pay for play. Let's call it for what. It yeah. Is. But I don't want to make it seem like if you see that a school has announced a collective, that it's absolutely certain that that is being used to buy recruits. I don't, I don't know that to be the case. Ohio States, at least on the surface is, you know, that's the one with Cardell Jones is involved. Uh, Brian Schottenstein, obviously they have the Schottenstein center there. Um, they are, you know, they're, they're, they're a nonprofit. Their stated purpose is that they're going to try to match current Ohio state athletes with charitable causes and have them do appearances and so on and so forth. And by the way, nothing wrong with that. You can take care of your current players any way you want. It's the, it's the getting involved it's with the recruits. Recruit yeah. parts. That is the paper. I mean, honestly, it's the stuff you've written about extensively in the last month. Yeah. That is the part where I feel like is different. And so schools are having to make a decision right now, whether they want to, whether they're going to play that game or not. You know, there's, believe me, a lot of prominent football schools that don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, but if that's, a very noble stance to take, but if you start losing kids to the schools that are paying, um, you know, your coach might step up and say, Hey, we got to do this. All right, Bruce. Well, I think we should get to our guest. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second. But now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. 
They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right. And now, Stu, we're pleased to be joined by our guest, Aaron Suttles, who covers Alabama so well for The Athletic. Aaron, you guys just had a spring game down there. Nobody saw it, at least nobody outside of Tuscaloosa. What do we need to know about the Crimson Tide now? Uh, well, they got it over with as quickly as possible. Uh, they had a running clock and it was raining. So there wasn't a, a ton to be gleamed from that particular spring game, other than the fact that Will Anderson, in my opinion, remains the best player in college football. I think uh, what he did last year, I'm not saying it's going to be on the same level, but I do think pe more people are going to know the name Dallas Turner by the end of this season. And he's uh, the other bookend that Alabama has at outside linebacker. They're going to make life really difficult on opposing quarterbacks. And, and Nick Saban told Matt Stinchcomb on ESPN that they got a third guy from the DMV area named Chris Braswell, and they're going to try to find a way to get all three of those guys on the field at the same time. So Alabama's pass rush this year is probably going to be pretty dominant. I feel like we've been saying for several years now, because you know, Alabama definitely went from being, you know, having defenses like the one Georgia had last year to a lot of high scoring games, you know, it drives Nick Saban crazy. And I feel like for the last couple of years, it was, no, this is the year they're going to get back to playing really good defense. And they did at times, um, but certainly not to the level that they used to be. Do we, do you think this year's Alabama defense will for real uh, be one of the, you know, the better defenses in the country? Yeah, I do. And statistically they, they returned, you know, they had a three year slump after Jeremy Pruitt left for Tennessee in 2018, 19, and 20 under Pete Goldnew, or they just got progressively worse every season. Last year, they were really good against the run. They did give up some points. Um, but then again, Alabama had its way against Georgia in the SEC championship game. So I, I feel like playing de defense in this era of college football against great quarterbacks and elite skill position players is as tough as it's ever been. But I do feel like as good as you can be on defense, Alabama is going to be close to that this year they, they just got all the pieces they got a leader at every level um and the only real question i have is you know the rotation of the defensive linemen who are going to play and then who who wins the starting job beside henry to'o to'o whether it's uh, the sort of the experienced player in Jalen moody or it's a younger guy like deontay lawson so i want to circle back with you on on will anderson like I think most people would say he was probably the best player in the program last year because he was in the best player in college football last year. Obviously a different Crimson Tide player. He was my Heisman. Uh, it's he, it's, I voted for him for Heisman. Are you allowed to say that, Stu? Or are they going to... Uh, I think after the fact you can say that, yes. Okay. Um, so my question, though, is... I mean, look, there's been a lot of great players down there. I would make the case that he's could be Saban's best defensive player and probably best player he's ever coached in, at least in Tuscaloosa. Do you think it's realistic given the ramp up that he has, you know, ridiculous TFL numbers last year. Now you're talking about other guys on the other side, Dallas Turner, especially where I'm not saying they're going to completely ignore, you know, then change how they focus because they're afraid of Dallas Turner. But if he has another year where it's 30 TFLs or something like that, plus, 
do you think he has a legit shot of winning the Heisman now? I don't. I just don't think voters are geared in to defensive players. And unless, you know, unless it's a player, and I guess sort of like what Will did last year, if you have numbers, voters need numbers. They need to be able to quantify. Like it was very difficult for, for voters last year. I had this argument several times on Twitter. People couldn't understand why I was voting for Jordan Davis in, in the athletic straw poll for the Heisman because he didn't have the numbers. They, they pulled numbers. Well, that doesn't stack up. His, his value was way more important than his numbers. But people have a difficult time in sort of you know, realizing that. So unless Will tops his numbers from last year, which I don't think he's going to do, just because it was a really historical season, he's sort of competing with himself in his numbers that he did last year. So he'd have to go above and beyond that. Um, my thing with Will is I think it's a shame that the rules are what they are. He'd be the first player in the NFL draft taking the show, based on the scouts that I've talked to. He'd go number one. And it wouldn't really be even close. I think it's a shame that he's got to come back. But, you know, I'm sure Alabama's going to plug him up with the insurance policy and, and he wants to come back. But um, I, I think when a, when a guy's talented enough to be the number one player chosen for the draft a year early, he should be allowed to go do that. All right. So, Aaron, we, last year, you know, Nick Saban, is, Nick Saban is using the transfer portal the way I think you should use the transfer portal. Your whole, just to upgrade your roster at certain spots. And last year, Jamison Williams came in and, and ended up in some ways saving the season um, it's based on what we've heard and reading your story from the spring game. It sounds like he's got two guys on offense, two more transfers that could be two of their most important players this year. Yeah. They're, they're not bringing in guys just to bolster depth. They're going out and getting started. And Jameer Gibbs, I think has a chance to be Alabama's best offensive player this year, the transfer from Georgia tech. He's electric and a 75 yard touchdown run in the spring game that only happened because they took Will Anderson off the field. They basically had to take Will Anderson off the field to do anything offensively on Saturday. So he's one to watch out for. I think Jermaine Burton, the transfer from Georgia, is going to be their most consistent wide receiver. You know, they got Tyler Steen, an offensive tackle transfer from Vanderbilt. So, and then they got Eli Ricks from LSU. And I don't think they're done in the portal either. Uh, In both, both regards, I think they're going to lose some guys to the portal after, you know, after the spring, probably some guys saw where they, they were and they stacked up on the depth chart. They'll probably be seeking other opportunities. And I think there are probably a guy or two out there that, that Alabama needs to bolster um, some competition in, in certain places, maybe a wide receiver. Did you not um, take maybe the, one of the fastest guys in college football? Wasn't he on campus this weekend well, from Louisville? Tyler Her- uh, Harrell from Louisville was on, an, was on a visit this weekend. So I'll be watching out for see if Alabama adds him because receiver wasn't very good this spring. Hey, uh, Aaron, I just want to jump in quick because you talked about Pete Golding before. Obviously, Pete Golding was in the news, not in a favorable way with uh, DUI a couple of months ago. Um, how much pressure, as you said, there were three, three by Alabama senators down years. How much pressure is on him now there? What's, what is the temperature like? And are you surprised that Saban has stuck by him as long as he has? Because in the past, he's had kind of a a quick trigger if he felt like a coordinator wasn't, wasn't doing his job. Yeah. I was surprised he was back last year. I thought there was a chance that he might end up with Sarkeesian in Texas. Um, but that didn't, that didn't happen. And then I think last year took some pressure off him. You guys know how fans are the first time that they have a bad outing. My mentions are going to be filled with fire Pete Golden again, uh, just as they have been for the past four years. But I think last year took a lot of pressure off him because they were better than most people think defensively last year the thing that got much much more improved was the run defense 
Um, they were, I think, a top, I think, top two or three national run defense. They were a top ten overall defense nationally. So, um, and and then what they're expected to be this year, I think that took a lot of pressure off him. You know, and I think the reason Nick Saban has stuck by him is he's he's been a pretty, pretty good recruiter. And, you know, he's, you know, make of this what you will. I, I do think he's the main recruiter for Arch Manning, the top player in this year's recruiting class. So, um, and, and then he did a really good job last year. So that's why he came back this year. I was more surprised that he was back last year after three really subpar, as, as you mentioned, Stu, relatively subpar um, performances by those Alabama defenses. I wanted to uh, follow up on something. We Last year at this time, one of the breakout stars, if you just watched their spring game, was a receiver from Florida who, who had some amazing catches. That receiver did very little. It seemed like got on a bunch of lists in a, in a not a favorable way from what you you know, we'd hear, depending on who you talk to in Tuscaloosa. And now Jai Hall is headed to Texas where he's kind of reuniting with Jeff Banks, who was the guy who recruited him to Alabama. He's not the only guy who... Um, has transferred from Tuscaloosa to Texas. Obviously, there's a lot of connections between those staffs. It's not just Sark. Um, the old old line coaches with him at from Alabama, uh, Kyle Flood, as well as now a couple of players. Um, you're, if you're a Texas fan, what would what would you say to a Texas fan about what they are getting from? Because they know they're getting guys who've been hyped and have some athleticism. What do you think they're getting based on what you know about what they were like in Alabama? Yeah, I, I think Ajay Hall has got some growing up to do, some, some maturity issues, which isn't really that uh, really out, out of the ordinary sometimes for athletes. And sometimes a change of scenery will do them good. I think with Ajay, he had, had sort of put so many hurdles in his way to getting back into the good graces of coaching staff. It was going to be very difficult for that to ever happen at Alabama, for them to fully trust him. Um, so, but some, so I think having a clean slate is going to be really good for him. Uh, I think he had an opportunity late last year, you know, when John Mechie got hurt in the SEC championship game. And then uh, when, when Jamison went down in the national championship game, there was an opportunity for all those wide receivers to step up and make plays. And Ajay Hall dropped a touchdown pass in that game. So he was, whether it was he didn't put himself in the right mental frame to take advantage of all those reps, you know, when he should have been because he was pouting or, or whatever, he didn't take advantage of those opportunities. So I think going to Texas – Wiping the slate clean with a coaching staff. A lot of those guys he already knows is good for him. But I, I would be, I would be, if I were Texas, more excited about Jaleel Billingsley because I think he's a mismatch type player who had a hugely disappointing season for Alabama last year. He, he should have had a, he should have had a sort of a on the verge of an All American type season, I, I think. And he just didn't. He had way too many drops. He was another player that got in the doghouse. So for several of those guys, I think it's good to go out and just have, you know, sort of a fresh start with Texas. You see, look, Alabama has been a much, much better program than Texas for a long time now. So I don't want to say that they're going to, that they could be rivals, but they are playing this year, second week of the season in Austin. And all those- ESP- ESPN has Texas number six in its preseason. Ranking. <laughs> I don't look, I was at the Texas LSU game in Austin a few years ago. And you know, that was Joe Burrow's breakout moment. Um, Texas almost won the game and they're right in it right till the end. Like this is a game that's going to be like Texas's Super Bowl. What is Alabama? Is it, will it be a big deal for them or just like, that's another box to check before we uh, go play uh, LSU and, and all these other teams. 
You know, Nick Saban doesn't overlook anybody, but but I do think having them week two will sort of serve what what previous teams have had in that initial season opening neutral site game, whether it was Miami or USC or Florida State, they could sort of use that game to keep them mentally focused during those tough summer workouts. So I think that's what that will serve at Texas. I, I think it's interesting because you mentioned all the all the staff. Um, Turnover Alabama's had, and some of those guys went directly to Texas. And another guy that's very familiar with Nick Saban, that they still have a really good relationship with, is Bo Davis, the defensive line coach of Texas. We fans may remember it was his leaked audio uh, on the bus that that sort of showed some 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 discontent there from what the the Longhorns are from a culture where they are culturally and building that thing. But they know they know Nick Saban, you know, and on both sides of the ball. So I do think Texas is going to be real up for that game. Alabama's just a better team, and um, that doesn't mean Alabama's a perfect team this year, but Alabama's got as good a roster. I think there's only two rosters in college football that are at the very top, and that's Alabama Ohio State. Hey, Aaron, before we wrap, I just wanted to bring up, this is the first time Stu and I have both seen you, or at least I have. Um, I don't know if Stu may have seen you back in Indianapolis, but um, I imagine it's very different on the beat now, and I did want to bring this up because, you know, there was as much a – familiar face and voice on that beat and it was one of your mentors Cecil Hurt we haven't really had a chance to talk to you You did a really thoughtful column when he had passed I guess it was probably three months ago or so but with more time I just for the people who maybe aren't around there what kind of um, what kind of feeling is there about what he meant to people there as the voice that people trusted. And I mean, I, I would love for you to be able to like kind of give people more context on, on maybe what, what he meant to people there. Yeah. Cecil sort of bridged old school and new school in the fact that, you know, he, he had the new school. He was very funny on Twitter um, and, and sort of used his wit to gain some followers and sort of quote unquote build his brand. But Cecil Hart started off as just a local columnist and those are sort of a dying breed because local columnists don't really have the importance that they used to because they used to be the voice of the whole program. Uh, well, now, you know, you can read a blogger's opinion. You can read, you know, several, um, several columnists nationally about your, your program. So in a, in a sort of a weird way, the local columnist has been diminished, but Cecil had that importance. The Rose administration, which is Alabama's, um, not just athletic department administration. Rose administration is the administration for the entire university. So presidents, chancellors, all that. He, they read him. They cared what he thought. And that's the highest, to, to the highest, you know, board of trustees, Nick Saban. Nick Saban would call Cecil Hurt and bounce ideas off of him, like big picture, not like dictating coverage, but like big picture, getting, um, giving his opinion on on certain PR moves that he maybe should think about making, stuff like that. Like, the people that matter at Alabama, from the head coach um, to the most powerful people around that program and in that university, cared what Cecil thought. And so that voice is gone and it, and it, and it will never be replaced, at least from a sports writing capacity. I just always thought it was amazing how he his institutional knowledge. I mean, there can't be that many people left around Alabama that that covered it from Bear Bryant all the way up through most of the you know Nick Saban dynasty to this point and you, you, that's what you're you know just in in sports in general um I feel like 
everybody's kind of just caught up in the last what's happening right now or what's happened in the last five years. He had that historical perspective and gosh, I, what a, what a void. I mean, I'm getting sad all over again, thinking about it. Yeah. And you know, he, he wasn't just a sports guy. Like if you knew Cecil, like he would make some of the, the, he would drop classic literature into his columns and like make it fit. So the common person, even though they may not have ever read that passage or book would understand it. And so um, I, I just, it's a huge loss. I'm still sad about it because we, we have lost that and um, it's never going to come back because the institutional knowledge, especially with the business today, people move around so much um, that even some of the people on the beat with me don't even remember the, you know, they don't really remember when Alabama struggled because they've, they've only really known Nick Saban in these 15 past years of greatness. But, um, you know, to fully appreciate what this, what this program is, you have to recognize the highs and the lows. And uh, Cecil did that better than anybody. Mm. All right. Well, Aaron, we appreciate your time. Uh, we see you had some company walk into the room. <laughs> while you're, you're, I don't know if you saw the dog. No. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, we will let you get back to more important things, but it's good to hear your voice and good to hear your perspective on things. And hopefully we'll see you, I think, pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, Looking forward to it. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're going to get to the emails in a second, but um, one more topic we want to touch on, Bruce. You and Grace Rayner did a really good story on Spencer Rattler, uh, you know, going from Oklahoma to South Carolina now. And um, I don't want to say he's been forgotten about, but obviously not. I mean, this time last year, so crazy. This time last year, preseason Heisman favorite. Um, you know, we're about to, the draft is coming up and it was right after the draft last year that he started to show up as the, number one quarterback. And then obviously struggled, got benched, uh, you know, never in a million years would you have guessed we thought he's going to the NFL. Never would you have guessed he'd be at South Carolina right now. What are, what are some of the things you learned about Spencer and doing this story? 
I think from talking to coaches who've been around him, the most interesting part to me was that he, for better or worse, was has been the guy who's kind of been at the forefront of a lot of stuff that he jumped into, which may have been, and we were talking about NIL before, which may have been a lot more on his plate that probably to the detriment. Now, there's things he can benefit from financially, certainly, and there's other things. But um, one of the coaches I talked to made a really interesting point, which was like, you know, because he was the, as you said, he was the most prominent guy. This is a quote from the story. Usually the first people that break through a wall get bloody, said a coach who's known Rattler since his days as a five-star recruit. Quote, somebody had to go through that wall first. Spencer was Mel Kuyper's top pick in his early mock 2022 draft. Spencer had his own logo created. He had a marketing rep. That's a lot. And then somebody else had put this as, remember, he was the guy who was the face of that QB1 documentary. He did their show. He did not always come across in a flattering light because of that. And as it was point to like, you know, how he handled NIL, and just kind of wheeling and dealing last summer at the Elite 11 when he was a counselor, I think there were a lot of people who were like, whoa, this, this kid is jumping into the deep end of the pool and it may backfire on him. And to some degree, you could say it did because he ended up getting benched at OU. There was a lot of expectations that it was hard to live up to him. And I thought this was an interesting you know, quote from somebody else. He tried to reverse engineer the whole thing quote, and it got him. It was him versus his shadow last year. Now he moved on to South Carolina. We'll see what his, I don't want to call it his second act, but how this goes now. By all accounts from the people Grace and I talked to, um, they feel at South Carolina, they feel like he has been, quote, humbled and his teammates like him and all of that. Now the question is, how is he going to do in the SEC? You know, week two, they play at Arkansas. Week three, they play Georgia. You know, those are going to be some really challenging situations. Um, I would ask you this. You've watched him a lot, seen him play in a bunch of games. I mean, never mind first pick in the draft next year, any of that stuff. Do you think he will be able to lead South Carolina in year two for Shane Beamer to be a top 20 kind of team? Oof. I think a lot of that depends on how good is the, 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 the talent around him. I think they – frankly overachieved to get even get to a bowl game last year. What I was going to bring up is, you know, so there, you guys wrote a story. There was also a story on him where he did an interview with ESPN and he talks a lot about how frustrated he was to get benched for Caleb Williams in the Oklahoma game. They thought about transferring that very next week, but hung around. Um, what I didn't see was any acknowledgement that there was a reason he got benched. And I'm looking at his stats right now. He dipped from a 172 passer rate, 172.6 to 155.5, 10.3 yards per attempt to 7.9. Um, he really struggled. And what I didn't really hear was any sort of, have you pinpointed what went wrong? What are you working on? You know, how do you go back to being the kind of quarterback you were in 2020? Um, you know, I do think probably all the hype and attention around him last year played a role. Um, but is that the only thing? Is there something going on from a skills perspective that needs to be brought to light? I, you know, I, I think there were some people who read our story and were like, he doesn't seem like he's really taking much of, you know, the brunt of this or accountability where 
the last line, and this is something Spencer told uh, Grace was, I learned you can't trust a lot of people. That's what I've learned. And I think for people who read that as the takeaway of the story were like, that kind of was like, I don't know how much you've learned then, you know, in that, whereas um, like what I felt like we did well with this story was kind of show the world that the kind of how he jumped into a certain part of the QB space and, you know, like, how is this going to work out? I think there's a lot of people who like Spencer fine. I think they wonder, yes, he has ability. Um, but it's like, is the cake baked? Meaning like, there's still a lot of stuff that need to be figured out. And I think it's going to be really interesting because as you said, South Carolina had a nice first year for Shane Beamer. It was a big headline grabbing. Hey, the former five-star guy, we remember that name. Um, you know, it's the jury is definitely still out on was he the guy who was just overhyped both in the recruiting process and in the in the quote mock draft space. Oh, and some of that is a credit to Lincoln Riley and his pedigree of what he had done with with previous quarterbacks. So, um, you know, we wanted to put a, a context into what what South Carolina is getting. And I'm fascinated to see how this goes from here. Yeah, I don't doubt that it was very hard to have fans chanting for the backup and um, you know, I'm sure it's very embarrassing to get benched on national TV in the middle of the, you know, one of the biggest games of the season. So I'm not saying he doesn't have reason to feel bitter. Um, the question is, you know, what is he doing to improve on the field? Because he just, he didn't, there's no way to share a card. He didn't play well last year, uh, especially after what we saw from him the year before. But he said, we get to the mailbag. As always, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. The first question is from Michael Donlin in Lincoln, Nebraska. What are your thoughts on tackling in the spring game? There was a lot of disappointment among Husker fans after this year's Nebraska spring game because they didn't tackle. They basically would count the player down after a thud up. Is this becoming common among schools? I assume teams tackle during spring ball. Players get injured during spring ball. What makes spring scrimmages so different? Do you think this is taking safety to the extreme? What do you think? Yeah, you see a lot of different coaches have a wide range of opinions on how to handle those spring games. We know they don't want to get guys injured, but so I don't, I don't know what the right answer is. I will say this, um, you know, not just because we just had Aaron Suttles on, but Nick Saban seems to know what he's doing when it comes to college football. And he has always treated the spring game as being as close to a real game as possible, right? You can't sack the quarterback, but it's tackling the one, the number one guys play. They don't hold out half the team. He looks at it as a prep, you know, a key uh, step in preparing guys, especially younger guys for the season. So while I get the concern, I, I would have to think that if he views it as this is a big benefit, then um, I'm a little puzzled why other coaches go so far in the other direction i think it comes back to the injuries these coaches are worried about guys getting taken to the ground and that's where they worry about some little injuries can happen um mm -hmm. i was watching i forgot what it might have been the georgia spring game and my son was watching and he was like asking me well why is the quarterback wearing a different jersey i'm like well because he's he can't be hit he goes well why is the slot receiver wearing it and i was like that's a good question i don't <laughs> know why that was um, and it's maybe that player had, had an injury. I, I don't know why they were out there if they weren't going to be hit. Um, right. and so, 
you know, you see different things in spring games. You see, you know, play. I think sometimes what happens, and I feel like there's another team that just did thud in one of the spring games I saw where I don't know if it was they were down numbers at a certain position and they just felt like, all right, this is the way we're going to do it because we have to put something out, uh, you know, some product out, but we're not going to have it. You know, look, I, I think I watched Michigan State's spring scrimmage and it was there was a lot of practice to it. It was different practice periods, seven on seven, different things. And so, you know, I think there's you know, back years ago, it wasn't like you would see, and I'm talking like 20 years ago, it wasn't like you'd see every spring game on TV as a TV product. You right. know, I think people approach it differently. Yeah. I mean, some, co- I mean, a lot of coaches just hate spring games. They know they need to do it. It's a good opportunity for the fans in many cases. I mean, in the PAC 12, for one, I don't know if it's the case in the big 10, they're required to do it for the TV network. Um, but they hate them. And then you've got other coaches like Saban who really embrace them. So um, it's just always been kind of all over the map. Uh, Next question is from Steven in New York City. Hi, Bruce and Stu. Big fan of the podcast. Both Notre Dame and Oregon made some splashy, albeit risky, head coaching hires with Marcus Freeman and Dan Lanning. Both coaches were 35 at the time of their hiring, and it's never a given that an elite coordinator translates to a head coach. So five years down the road, which one do you see as having had more success in a head coaching role will either have made a CFP full disclosure. I'm an Oregon alum, Oregon alum. So here's to hoping Lanning succeeds and stays in Eugene for a long time. Uh, Ooh, this is a tough question. Marcus Freeman has a little bit of the advantage in that he came from the program and knew the dynamic he was getting into. Um, if you asked me, and it's hard to say because we, we don't know what they're going to be like on game day. I do feel like and this is not a knock on any of the Oregon hires. If you ask me, two of the best at their position coaches, if not the best, are I feel like Freeman brought back Harry Heastand as the O-line coach who had produced a ton of great players and has revered um, – as for developing really good offensive linemen. And I feel like Dylan McCullough is as good a running back coach as there is in football. Those were huge hires for him. Um, we'll see how it works out with Al Golden. I think it's good that Al Golden certainly has been a head coach and has seen football from a bunch of different le- levels, especially in the NFL. And I think that will be a good resource for Freeman as a young head coach. Um, but like I said, though, the staff he put together, I think is a really, really good one. Certainly if you ask any diehard Notre Dame fan or, our, or our friends, Pete Sampson or, or Matt Fortuna, or as I know from Brady Quinn, people think very highly of Tommy Reese around the program and to retain him as an OC when Brian Kelly certainly wanted to, to, to bring him to Baton Rouge, I think was key. So I don't know. It sounds like I'm, I'm saying Freeman. I sounds think like you're that, saying Freeman. Yeah. I mean, that's not a knock on Dan Lanning, but I just think like there were some wow hires that I thought Freeman put on that staff. So it looks, I don't have a, 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 you know, a definitive answer one way or the other, but I'll take the argument for Lanning. Um, I think that first of all, a, a, a challenge for our kind of maybe something that working against Freeman is he is succeeding the winningest coach in school history. And I know Notre Dame fans are ready to disown Brian Kelly at this point, but he set a pretty high bar. He Notre Dame uh, has 
been winning 10 plus games a year, going to playoffs, having their best run in since Lou Holtz. And I don't know that it's necessarily a given that that continues. Whereas Dan Lanning is succeeding Mario Cristobal. Mario Cristobal did win two Pac-12 titles. He had success, but it wasn't, he wasn't at Chip Kelly level, right? Or early Mark Helfrich level. I think that there's room to go up from there for Dan Lanning. And also, and I'm, I know I'm sounding like I'm just uh, beating a dead horse here with NIL stuff, but like, but Division Street, the Oregon Collective, which is a Phil Knight thing, uh, is as active in this right now as anybody. Um, you may have seen over the weekend, Oregon got a four-star uh, receiver uh, who not only picked Oregon, but reclassified to come in this this year so he can start making the money. Um you know, they got a kid and off a five-star offensive line at USC thought for sure they were getting. So I don't know that Notre Dame is playing that game yet. Oregon is. So he's going to have some help. He doesn't, I agree. His, his staff is definitely less established or less uh, proven than Notre Dame, but he's getting some help. All right. So neither one of us had answered this part of the question. Well, you know, five years down the road, Stephen asks, will either have made a CFP now. Oregon has made one. It was a while ago. It was under Mark Helfrich back when Marcus Mariota was the star. Um, it's been a while. It feels like it's been a while. Notre Dame certainly has been there. So who do you think has a better chance within five years of making the playoff? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I'm sticking on Notre Dame and the fact I that... I think Notre Dame has a better chance in the short term. It's not I don't going know about to over the whole easier. five years. It's not going to be any easier with Lincoln Riley replacing Clay Helton. It's not, though. I don't think Oregon's going to, you know, back down necessarily. Um, answer. Give well, here's answer. one. Here's another thing. Here's another answer. thing. Though. Well, here's another factor. If Marcus Freeman takes Notre Dame to a playoff, I have very little doubt Marcus Freeman will still be their coach in five years. I don't know that if Dan Lanning takes Oregon in the playoff, I don't, or even comes close to, I don't know if he'll still be there in five years. So uh, I'll go with Notre Dame on that one. Oh, a little uh, Stu playing both sides of the fence there. Um, but uh, towards your point, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, Mario Cristobal obviously left to go back home. Willie Taggart essentially left there to go back home uh, to Florida. So, you know, here's Dan Lanning from the Midwest. Um, now he has spent a little time as he, you know, we talked about on our podcast with him a few weeks back, but yeah, I, I could kind of see what you're saying. Um, I'm going to ask you this last one too, from Gordon Smith, dear Stu and Bruce, what is the best job between Florida, Miami and Florida state said another way. If all three current coaches from those programs retired tomorrow and all three schools offered the same head coaching candidate, which job should that coach pick? Um, so is he saying, is Gordon saying essentially that if they had their, like if Mario Cristobal has his choice, you know, he's definitely picking my, yeah, I think it's gotta be somebody who's doesn't have an attachment to one of the three schools. So they're just based on what those programs are, chances of success, which one should they pick? Look, uh, Florida state to me is the one in the trickiest spot. And obviously you have a coach there and Mike Norvell, who has at times been on the hot seat already. And I think you have two other coaches in Billy Napier and Mario Cristobal who are coveted, who are just, you know, on a honeymoon phase. The tricky part, I think, especially for Norvell, is you have 
one of the most prominent alums in the history of the football program is a head coach who, you know, is kind of breathing down his neck there. A lot of people think in football that Deion Sanders may be the head coach there a year from now. That's a tough situation to have if you're the current head coach. Mike Norvell did a really good job at Memphis. I think he, you know, look, and this dates back before Willie Taggart to Jimbo. That program was falling apart. And so now he's had to try to get some momentum there. And I mean, I, I'm interested to see how it's going to go at Florida State. Like, I would ask you this, and I don't want to spin Gordon's question too far. Stu, like um, a year from now, who's the head coach at Florida State? You, you, you feel I love like how you managed to just completely duck out of answering the question and then turn it around and ask me a completely different question. Well, it's I'm I'm trying to help here. So answer my. Uh, I I agree with you that that Deion Sanders will probably be the coach of Florida State a year from now. I didn't say that was definitely going to happen. I don't know if I would say it's like if Mike Norvell goes nine and three. I don't think you can fire him if you're them. All right, let's rephrase it. If Mike Norvell struggles again this year, I think oh, there's then, a very good yeah, chance. And I think they they're going. My to. answer to the actual question he asked us is Florida for one simple reason. They're in the SEC. I My answer that, to it is the opposite because they are in the SEC. Miami can go in there. If Mario Cristobal does what he thinks he's going to do, you basically have to get by Clemson, which according to what you said last week, Dabo Sweeney's mangling the transfer yeah. point and going to shoot himself in the foot. Like Miami's built, you know, the way now that it has the resources, it obviously has the best recruiting back, you know, fertile soil. Um, to me, it's a different level job. Whereas Florida, you're competing with Georgia. Good luck on that. Good luck. With, and then it's the other side, which is even harder to me. Um, and look, Miami's won more national titles than any of them. It's been a while, but it, it to me, it has the most potential because you do not have to compete every week with a football program that is positioned as well, if not better than you. And quite honestly, Georgia at this point definitely is. Alabama is. We haven't even talked about what's going on with, with Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. You know, you got Brian Kelly in the league now. You have Lane over there. Um, you know, it's that's a lot. It's true. And I see, I absolutely see what you're saying. Why are you saying the SEC makes it a better job? It doesn't. Money. I think that over the next five to 10 years, the SEC, I think the ACC going forward is in big trouble because they signed that terrible TV deal. And by in the next five or so years, you know, SEC programs, they already have the most money. They're going to have even more money. And I think the ACC is going to fall further and further behind. So, so, you know, and that Miami, Miami, like some, Miami has a lot of the same issues. You know, Miami, we have seen an uptick in, you know, them spending money on athletics. not an uptick. It is a dramatic difference. Yes. Uh, that's not like, but what I'm asking, but you they is, still have some of the same. What you know, is they the still money play issue in the, going to be? What is the money issue going to be? That's going to be a game changer for Florida related to the rest of its conference. Um, what do you mean? Like they're going to have more money. So I guess the, I guess the question is, what is your goal here as a coach? Is your goal to go like you could go to Florida to let's stick with Miami. You go to Miami and if Clemson does spiral, like maybe you have a chance to um, win a bunch of ACC titles. Um, 
but is your or is your goal to win national championships? If I Mario think Cristobal the best path to the national championship is still going to be in the SEC, whether Georgia's in your division or not. Hey, if you're such a great coach, why can't you unseat Kirby Smart? Is it such a given that he has to have the best program in the SEC East? Do we not remember when Urban Meyer won two national titles in three years at Florida? If uh, if Mario Cristobal recruits as well as most people who know him think he will, you can compete with anybody then. I mean, there's more talent in his backyard than there is in any part of the country. So long, so long story, we, we're running out of time here. So long story short, my, the Miami grad and the Miami Homer says that Ooh, the guy should take the, the Miami, Miami job. Homer, really? And, the, and the, the Northwestern grad, who's completely neutral party in this, says he should take the Florida job. We'll let the people decide which person they want to listen to here. Hey, you're you're telling me that that they're going to overtake Kirby Smart and Nick Saban and everybody else in that division. And I'm saying it's a much different. What do you so if you're it sounds to me like you're saying Billy Napier committed career suicide, right? Like, what do you think he's going to be able to do? I think he's a really good hire there. I think it is a much tougher job because you just have so many more. Um, so many more battles to win where people are, are as good, if not better resource than you are. If you're in the ACC, if you're Mario Cristobal, you have the best recruiting footprint. You have, um, you're going up against a bunch of basketball schools. You know, it's North Carolina, it's NC state, you know, NC state has done a good job with how they're, they're built. It's Pitt, who's not a basketball school, but you know, it's like, they're, they're not Georgia and Texas A&M and they're not LSU where they win national titles under every coach. And you don't have the best. And the biggest thing is you do not have the best coach in the history of the sport in your same conference. Like you have to get past that. So looking at the USA Today list that they put out every year of the schools, the, the athletic departments that brought in the most revenue, uh, Florida was number seven in the country. One, one spot behind Georgia, oh, a one, 179 million to 174 million difference there. Florida State was 23rd in the country down there around more like Arkansas. Unfortunately, Miami's not on here because they're Miami's a private school. school. Yeah. Again, I mean, I wouldn't get too hung up in, well, they're going to make this. Like your alma mater is in the Big Ten. They're making a shit ton of money. Like is that a real game changer? They have nice, fancy facilities. I think, I think like sometimes people are conflating, putting too much on, Oh, the TV money is this automatically. It's going to just turn everybody into, um, into Oregon or into, you know, like it's just to me, it's no, but Northwestern doesn't have, they didn't win two national titles in three years. They don't have, they didn't have Steve Spurrier. They don't have, there is a template there to be one of the best programs in the country. If you're the right coach. Um, I think you're, you're like, I get it. Kirby smart. It's coming off the national title. They're recruiting as well as anybody. That's a tough, that's a tough deal. What you just said, Miami, Florida has all the pieces to be doing what those programs are. If they have the right, I mean, you want to talk about template. Miami had put together the best program, best team in the history of the sport. That is a template. But if you're going to say that. Yeah, it How much do you way, think? I don't want to go on forever with this, but let me ask you. Bad a question. facilities when that happened. There was a lot of stuff they did not have at all. Do you, do you think Miami? Well, there's a lot of reasons why Miami has has fallen from where they were in 2001. 
how much was losing the orange bowl and having to go play in Miami gardens, nowhere near their campus. One of them. That definitely didn't help, but look, I, I'm, I suspect within, I don't know, within five or six years, Miami will be working towards being in a very local stadium. That would be good. I have a Much lot of confidence. The Orange Bowl, by the way. I have a lot of confidence, Mario Cristobal. I think he's going to do very well there. Um, the question is just going to be like, as an ACC program, are you going to just eventually hit a ceiling? Like Clemson has managed to, you know, the ACC did not stop Clemson from getting Trevor Lawrence and going and, and winning national championships. So to this point, it has not necessarily been a deal breaker, but this sport is going increasingly, increasingly, the power is increasingly consolidating into the SEC and the Big Ten, is what I'm saying. Um, as always, send your emails to the pod at gmail.com. There are a lot of spring games this weekend, so I think we'll have a lot more to talk about next week. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.